Okay, today we continue with the series, Eight Essential Elements of the Biblical Christian Gospel. What we are trying to address in this very long series is what uh, many people today refer to as the modern reductionist gospel that developed out of the uh, modernist fundamentalist controversy and the uh, conservative reaction to liberalism. And... uh, in many, it's reductionist in so many ways that uh, we're having a long series to address it. So, uh, one particular aspect of it is that it tends to be Gnostic. We'll probably touch on that a little bit today, and uh, uh, we're so we're going to continue on. In Roman numeral one is listed the eight essential elements that we're covering. We've been on, we've been on element three. I'm sorry, element five. For 23 weeks now, this is the 24th message uh, on Element 5. It's the 44th message in the series. And um, we've been looking at Jesus Christ, the only mediator, uh, an introduction to Christology, you could call it. Christology is just a branch of... Theology means just the study of God's Word, a systematic study of God's Word. And Christology is a branch of theology, the study of Jesus Christ. So we've been studying Jesus Christ now for 24 lessons. Today we're going to look at uh, the doctrine uh, and the fact of the ascension and that of uh, the glorification and the coronation of Christ. Now, interestingly, as I uh, was studying this this week, one of the things I always study is what uh, contemporary Eastern Orthodox teaching is, Roman Catholic teaching, Reformed Protestant teaching, liberal mainstream Protestant teaching, and evangelical or fundamentalist Protestant teaching. And in the conservative Bible-believing camps that, that uh, would, uh, would, fall, would include the Reformed tradition and the evangelical tradition, almost every commentator I read acknowledges that the ascension is a very, very important subject that is totally neglected in the church today. And so um, hopefully... Uh, this is not the first message you've ever heard on the ascension of Christ or the first time you've ever thought much about the ascension of Christ. But if it is, we're definitely putting a very important brick in the foundation uh, of your understanding of the Word of God today. So the ascension is an important uh, idea. Uh, We're going to look at three things about the, or four things about the ascension today. We're going to look at the resurrection and the ascension and the glorification of Christ in the Christian creeds throughout the church history. We're going to look at the ascension uh, in aspect of there's uh, a festival of the church called Ascension Thursday, and uh, some traditions of the church, because there's not as good a turnout, of course, to uh, for the people of the Lord to get together on Thursday, even though Thursday would be for you know, would be the day that Christ ascended. Um, Many traditions, uh, even within the Roman Catholic tradition, some parishes uh, um, celebrate uh, Ascension Thursday, others Ascension Sunday, just because they have a larger audience. And part of the whole point of the church calendar is to reteach the main ideas of Christology every year to the whole church. So, um, of course, Ascension Sunday uh, happens uh, 40 days after uh, Easter and uh, and and our Ascension Thursday does uh, happens forty days after the, uh, the crucifixion and the resurrection kind of thing. Okay, so um, 
here, here's what uh, we're going to look at a couple creeds in the history of the church. What, why are creeds important? We know this, we teach on this a lot, but just, just for, so, and I can't teach on it much today, but I just want to review a couple points. One of the, what creeds are basically is an acknowledgement that Jesus said, I will build my church in Matthew 16, 18. So from the day of Pentecost, uh, of course, leading up to the day of Pentecost through the ministry of Christ, he was building a community of believers and teaching them who he was and what his ways were. And he poured his spirit out on that community of believers on Pentecost, and the church was born. 3,000 people were added to the church on Pentecost after F Peter's famous day of Pentecost sermon. And there's a great summary of that Peter, uh, Peter's day of Pentecost summer, sermon is the very first podcast, if you go under our regular Sunday celebration podcast and scroll all the way back to, because they're backwards order, the most recent one being first, the latest one being at the end, uh, because John actually taught on that sermon as element zero of his uh, uh, series on uh, finding Christ in the Old Testament, or part zero. And so um, if you want to look at that sermon, I would encourage you if, uh, to do so. And that's an excellent, excellent uh, message that would be worth your reviewing. Now, from that day on, Jesus has always been active with his church, calling it back to himself, renewing it, restoring it, teaching it, uh, raising up and giving the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. He uh, dwells among the midst of the seven golden lampstands, Revelation says, and the seven lampstands represent the seven churches because a lampstand is where you put many individual lights to have a greater light. Your Christian life will have very little uh, impact uh, if it's not lived in, in terms of a missional community of believers. So um, creeds just acknowledge that the church always was wrestling with the ideas of the faith and that we're not the first guys who had the Holy Spirit, who studied the scriptures, who tried to teach uh, accurately the things of the word of God. Creedal statements are uh, created by men of God who, who, uh, who are qualified and study and try to summarize the major documents, doctrines of the, of the faith. The first creeds are actually in the New Testament itself. We're gonna touch on a couple of them today. And, uh, and then they, uh, they grew as in 1 Corinthians eleven nineteen, 19, Paul says, but heresies also arose among the people and they must arise. They're, they're part of God's sovereign plan. Challenges to the faith arose among the churches so that the church could make evident or manifest what the truth was. And, and creeds and the canonization of the New Testament and so forth were the church's way of counteracting false teachings that arose to be contrary ideas to Christ. So, of course, the two most famous creeds are the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, and I'm just going to read the parts of those creeds about the resurrection and the ascension and the glorification of Christ. And So in the, in the Apostles' Creed, it says, On the third day he rose again, he ascended into heaven, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father. Now, if you know anything about ancient kingdoms, and uh, all, all ancient cultures were statist. They were totalitarian. They had cults of emperor worship. And Christ very clearly is, is uh, teaching that he is the true and real king. And all of these would-be kings, of, he is the king of all those who would be kinging it. That's really what the Bible means when it calls him the king of kings. He's the lord of all the would-be lords. 
and he's the true king. And so uh, Jesus, when he ascended into heaven, he actually went through a coronation ceremony and was, and was seated at the Father's right hand. And he currently rules and reigns every atom, every galaxy, every heart, every political system, every nation, uh, all uh, scientific processes, uh, man's uh, attempts to create music, so forth. Christ is Lord of it all and King of it all. Now, in the modern reductionist view, you'll often hear that Christ is the Lord or the King of his people. And while Christ has a special relationship whereby he brings his kingdom largely through his people, they are his primary agent, his kingdom is by no means limited to the hearts of his people. First of all, just within his people, it's by no means limited to your heart. Uh, He is the king of your whole life. He's the king of the place you work. He's the king of America. He's the king of every nation. He's the king, uh, the mighty potentate that that raises up nations and tears down nations and assigns their boundaries and appoints their fall and their rise according to his purposes. And that is actually what the ascension means. He, He sat down at the right hand of the throne of the Father and he rules and reigns over every human heart, over every life, over every political event, over every economic event, etc. Every scientific discovery, he's involved in it. And uh, whether people have the eyes and ears to see or hear that or not, it's still true. So, again, the, night, the Apostles' Creed, on the third day he rose again, he ascended into heaven, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and from there he will come to judge the living and the dead. And when the Bible talks about the living and the dead, uh, <clears throat> for those of you who are familiar with Shakespearean English or King James English, it says the quick and the dead, He's, he, he will judge those whose spirits have been quickened, made alive, born again, who have become new creatures in his kingdom, and those who have not. He's the judge of all. The Nicene Creed, uh, which takes these lines right out of the New Testament, uh, words it this way. On the third day, he rose again in fulfillment of the scriptures. Because the the, uh, Bible makes clear that the Old Testament over and over again prophesied that. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. Now, those are the two most accepted, by far the Nicene Creed is the most accepted uh, creedal statement of all Christians of all time throughout all history. The third and fourth one are called the symbol of Chalcedon and the Athanasian Creed. The symbol of Chalcedon uh, was written after the Athanasian Creed. I just had placed only had room in my notes to stick it where I did. But uh, it was written in 451, and the symbol of Chalcedon clarified many ideas of Christology but did not readdress what some of the things the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed in the, in the New Testament Scriptures clearly stated. So the, the Cal, symbol of Chalcedon says nothing about the ascension in the present reign of Christ in terms of being at the Father's right hand, although it says a lot about the present reign of Christ. The Athanasian Creed, um, which was not necessarily written by Athanasius, there sometimes in church history tradition, some people would attribute it to it, but it really comes out of the the history of Athanasius uh, 
in some, in some cases, single-handedly opposing a false cult called Arianism. Uh, and he did so, uh, if, you, if you've never read uh, Athanasius' classic work on the Incarnation, is that on our intermediate list? should be if it's not. We should add it to that intermediate list. If you haven't read Athanasius' work, on, on, you know, those of you who went to Dominion Academy had to read that as part of your high school. Um, Athanasius, there's, a, there's an saying in church history, Athanasius contra mundum, which means Athanasius against the world. Arianism was such a sweeping cult that it looked like it was going to wipe out orthodox, true biblical Christianity at, at some times. Athanasius himself uh, was exiled as bishop five times uh, by, by various political forces because of his stance for the true doctrines of the Christian faith and uh, in, the, in light of the Arian bishops that were opposing the truth of the Christianity. Now, many of you are familiar with the Reformation. I decided to give us three of the more famous Reformation creedal statements. Uh, the Augsburg Confession, if you've ever seen the movie Luther. If you haven't seen that movie, you should see it. I've seen it about 100 times. And uh, I pretty much have every line memorized. But uh, um, uh, the Augsburg Confession was written in 1530. It was kind of a summary of the Protestant doctrines. And in the Augsburg Confession, it says concerning Christ, he also descended into hell and truly rose again the third day. Afterward, he ascended into heaven that he might sit at the right hand of the Father and forever reign and have dominion over all creatures and sanctify them that believe in him by sending the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit into their hearts to rule, comfort, and quicken them, that is, make them alive, cause us to be born again into a new and living hope, and defend them against the devil and the power of sin. The Westminster Confession, some of you who are involved with our catechism will recognize that. From chapter 8 of it, uh, which is chapter 8 is titled of Christ the Mediator, and that's what we've been studying here, Christ the Mediator. This is what we're studying for 24 weeks, and uh, I think I'm going to finish in two more weeks. I'm going to finish by the time I get to 5C, element 5, or 5Z, I mean. Uh, so we won't go on to 5AA, that kind of thing drives Emily nuts anyway on the on the uh, podcast. So um, 5A1C3. <laughs> no, no well, I'm not going to do that to Emily. So I'm going to actually finish by the time we get to element 5Z. Two more, two more weeks on Christology, and then we'll move on to uh, element 6, receiving Jesus Christ. So anyway, the Westminster Confession from chapter 8, which is titled Of Christ the Mediator, from section 4, on the third day he arose again from the dead with the same body in which he suffered, with which also he ascended into heaven and there sits at the right hand of the Father, making intercession, and shall return to judge men and angels at the end of the world. And I threw this one in for our good friends at Arbor Church and Bob Timer. The Baptist Confession of 1689 from section 8, paragraph 4. On the third day he arose from the dead with the same body in which he suffered, with which he also ascended into heaven, and there sits at the right hand of his Father, making intercession, and shall, judge, uh, shall return to judge men and the angels at the end of the world. Now, I've already mentioned Ascension uh, Thursday, but one of the things, I, as John teaches us regularly on the church calendar, many of you probably have never even heard of Ascension Thursday or Ascension Sunday or celebrated that or observed it or been taught about it at all. But historically, it's considered one of the five great Christological festivals of the church. Okay, so it's, historically, it takes a part in, in, uh, in Christian understanding of the church calendar that rivals Christmas and Easter. 
So um, even though it's fallen into neglect among modern uh, Protestant Christians. And every uh, source I checked online of various Reformed and Evangelical Christians acknowledge that it's ignored, but acknowledge that it should not be ignored. And uh, it's kind of interesting that one of the things you find in a lot of evangelicalism is there's good voices that say we shouldn't be doing this and teaching this and so forth, but it never seems to actually change what's being done and taught. Uh, So that's kind of an interesting phenomenon. So um, uh, that's all I really want to say about Ascension Thursday. That would be May 5th this coming year. And uh, Ascension Sunday would be May 8th. And hopefully John will be teaching us more about that come May 8th. Uh, So flip over to uh, some key scriptures about the ascension, the glorification, and the coronation of Christ the King. Psalm 110, verse 1 through 3, Jesus himself quotes it. It's the most often quoted psalm in the Bible. It's quoted exactly eight times in the New Testament and referred to many other times. And it says, The Lord said to my Lord... It's one of the ways Jesus confounded the Pharisees because he's asking the, you know, they ask him, by what authority are you doing these things? And he says, I'll ask you a question, and if you answer my question, I'll answer your question. <laughs> and uh, he says, uh, the baptism of John, was it from God or from men? And because if they say it was from God, they, uh, he had them nailed because he'd say, then why didn't you uh, repent and confess your sins and turn back to God like he uh, cried out for you to do? But if they say uh, it was not from God, uh, all the people knew John was a great prophet. And Jesus himself had taught that he was the fulfillment of the scriptures that say Elijah must come again. And so uh, Jesus had them in in an enigma or a puzzle that they were unwilling to answer. But he went ahead and answered them anyway. And he says, what does David mean when David says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until... I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That should uh, teach you about eschatology because the doctrine today is that the church will have less and less influence and the church will fall apart and there'll be less and less true faith and true Christians. But the Bible teaches that Christ will reign and sit at the Father's right hand and his kingdom will continue to expand and reign until in some measure of, of his body, his church, exercising authority in all the earth. And that until word is a time word. So he's going to sit at the Father's right hand until all the enemies of God are made a footstool for the body of Christ. Now, uh, Mark 16, 19 through 20, some of you know that Mark 16, 15 through 20 has some controversy. I believe it's from Scripture. Some would not. Um, Josh McDowell wrote a good book defending Mark 6, 15 through 20, but no significant doctrine of the Christian faith is only stated in Mark 16, 15 through 20. There's nothing in Mark 16, 15 through 20 that's not stated in numerous other passages in the Bible. Anyway, in verse 19 and 20 of Mark 16, it says, so then when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. That's where the creeds get that statement from. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by the signs that followed. 
one of the things we'll find is that the more we restore the true gospel and the true word of God and the true practice of Christian community, the way that the Bible in the, in the apostle, apostolic age practiced it, the more God will work with us to confirm his word by signs and wonders that follow. He's not going to confirm a message that's not his. Luke 24, uh, I, I listed 36 through 50, but I didn't have that much space. So here's some excerpts from 48 through 53. You are witnesses of these things. By the way, Acts 5, 5 31, 32, etc. Uh, John 15, 26, 27, you could note those two scriptures. The Bible always has two witnesses of everything concerning the major doctrines of Christ. The witness of the apostles and the church. There's always your witness of what you've experienced of the risen Christ. And there's always the witness of the Holy Spirit. And those two always work together. That gives you confidence. If you go out witnessing, you're not witnessing only to what God has done in your life, only to what Scripture says, only what do you know. But, you're, but the Holy Spirit will be witnessing with you. So you are witnesses of these things, and behold, I'm sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany. Now, I'll, I'll, I'll come back and explain the underlying parts in a minute. And he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they, after Washington, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. Now, this phrase, the promise, the promise actually is the, the sign of the ascension. Now, what is meant by the promise? If you want an interesting Bible study, just put the word promise in Bible Gateway and solve for every time the word is used in the New Testament. Okay, it's a very, very major theme in the New Testament because God promised, starting in Genesis 3.15, what's called the Proto-Evangel, uh, and on and on through the Old Testament, God made many promises of a new and redemptive covenant. Genesis 12, 1 through 3, for instance, God says to Abraham uh, that he would bless him and so forth and, and so forth. And then he says, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. The promise to Abraham was for the whole world. Okay, in fact, we probably should just read Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Uh, turn there in your Bibles. because Now, this promise... Uh, of Genesis 12, 1 through 3, with slightly different language, is repeated three times to Abraham in Genesis, and it's repeated to Isaac, and it's repeated to Jacob, who becomes Israel. Now, Genesis 12, 1 says, And the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and your relatives and from your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. Are you a blessing? I I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That is, all the nations, all the coastlands, all the peoples. Now, um, all through the Old Testament, God is making a promise uh, uh, that he would have a special people that would, that would represent him, that would be restored to him, that would fulfill his law, and that would therefore be blessed. If you study the word blessing, 
You'll understand if you go if you don't understand that word, go back on our podcast and listen to my Kingdom of God series, um, chapter three C, which talks about eight aspects of all covenants. But all covenants have laws, and there are sanctions of the covenant. There are specific blessings for obeying and specific judgments or, or disciplines or chastisements for disobeying. And God actually makes his, his law is the law of nations, and God blesses nations or disciplines nations according to their obedience or disobedience to his law, whether they know it or not. So, for instance, in modern times, when we developed the idea called Keynesian economics in the 1930s, if you go to Wright State and study economics, you'll find that over 95% of current university professors teach Keynesian economics. And Keynesian economics is a very immoral, sinful way of looking at economics. And it basically sacrifices the future by robbing your children and your children's children. I wish I could go into that more, but that's exactly the, uh, the economic system of all the major nations today. And what you saw in the financial shakeup of 2008 and the fact that Greece is still struggling to not collapse and they're trying to make sure that the whole thing doesn't collapse like dominoes, eventually it must. Because you can't, you, just in your own family, you can't just keep increasing your debt and increasing your debt and increasing your debt above your ability to earn an income and pay. You just can't. Eventually, it'll come crashing down. So, um, believe me, that would be known if they would just read, thou shall not steal. You look at your paycheck, there's this part called gr gross, which may be gross or maybe not. No, I'm just and, uh, But certainly the part called net is gross in relation to the gross. And you go, why? what happened? It's the, the fact that we, the federal government, the state governments, and the local governments don't understand thou shall not steal. Just because something's legal doesn't make it moral, as they teach, their, teach you in modern humanistic thinking. Uh, just because the majority of of the demagogues who, uh, or the, you know, the, the syndicate or the whatever, the elected mafia that runs the country votes that it's okay to steal your money doesn't mean it is. So, um, the point is, um, God has promises, and his promises have sanctions, and the sanctions have blessings, and God's promise is that he would make a covenant with his people in, a, in such a way that he himself would be the fulfillment of the covenant. Because one of the things you'll notice starting with the covenant with Adam, sometimes called the Dominion Covenant or the Adamic Covenant, um, sometimes wrongly called a covenant of works, because uh, in, if you see covenant theologians that call it a covenant works, it means that they are taking a step in the right direction from contemporary evangelicalism, but they still don't get it basically, because all covenants are covenants of grace, and uh, all covenants derive out of the one eternal covenant that, uh, that was in the Godhead. But in any case, that's if you want to find out more about that, consult Kingdom of God series chapter 3, C, eight aspects of all covenants. 
In any case, uh, let's get back to Luke 24. When he says, I'm sending the promise of my Father, that's a major idea in the New Testament. And that idea is expressed in Jeremiah 31, for instance, 31 through 34, that says, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, and I will write my laws upon their hearts and upon their minds, and they, I will put my spirit within them, and I'll write my law in their hearts, because that's one and the same. Pentecost, uh, when, when God baptizes in the spirit, Pentecost is the celebration of God's bringing the law down from Sinai. And he's fulfilling the promise that no longer is it going to be written on tablets of stone external to the human heart and that, who, that cannot do it because of the human heart's sin. But he's going to actually cleanse and create a new heart and write his heart, his law on that, on that new human heart of flesh and empower you to love it and want to do it. Pentecost is the ultimate fulfilling of God's law. <clears throat> and so, and then it goes on to say that they'll all know me from the least to the greatest. They'll all be priests and they'll all prophesy. And of course, uh, Joel 2, 28 and 29 quotes this. Peter quotes Joel in Acts 2, 17. So this phrase, the promise, is something you really kind of should do some studying on in the New Testament because it's a major idea of the New Testament that the New Testament is a fulfillment of all the promises of God. In fact, Paul in 2 Corinthians 1.20 says that in Jesus Christ, all the promises of God are yes and amen to the glory of God the Father. Okay, so that's uh, Luke 24. Now, the word Bethany, the reason I underline that, just in case you are comparing all the statements of the Gospels uh, about Jesus' Mount Olivet discourse and um, and his final discourse in, in, recorded in Luke 24 and Acts 1. Some of them say that he said it at the Mount of Olivet. This one says Bethany, and the Mount, uh, Mount Olivet was at Bethany. It's one in the same place. Um, then he uh, was carried up into heaven and uh, so forth. Acts 1, I can only give you some of uh, Acts 1, 1 through 11. Uh, the most full statement of the ascension and coronation and glorification of Christ is Acts chapter 1 and 2. You'd have to read the whole chapters. Uh, until the day, uh, you know, he starts in verse 1 by Luke says, uh, the first account I rose, Theophilus, which is the gospel of Luke, about all Jesus began to do and teach. Verse 2, until the day he was taken up. There was a specific day he was taken up called the ascension. And that happened after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He didn't give them suggestions. Some translations say orders. Some, some trans, translation says commands. They're not like, well, if you think about it or feel like it or if it fits into your schedule and if it doesn't make you get up too early on Sunday morning or the sun's not in your eyes or if you're not having a bad day. You might come in. He gave commands by the Holy Spirit to his uh, dis disciples that he had chosen, and those commands continue to be his commands in the church. He presented himself alive to the, them after his suffering by many infallible proofs. Uh, where am I? And, uh, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart Jerusalem. That's such a key thing because... What he's, uh, he's ordered them not to depart Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. 
And again, if you do this study on the promise, one of the things you'll see is a major aspect of the, the promise of the new covenant to Israel in, to, in the house of Judas is that among God's people, he would put his spirit in all of them and they would all become prophets. In the Old Testament, many people were filled with the spirit, but mostly God uh, used, did miracles through prophets, kings, and, and uh, judges and priests in the Old Testament. Sometimes he visited what a group of people called the sons of the prophets and so forth. But in the New Testament, all people become priests and all people become prophets. So you haven't actually experienced the full new covenant until you're baptized in the Holy Spirit, actually. Uh, you really haven't. Um, because it's an introductory step into receiving the new covenant. And uh, you are to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father. In other words, he's saying, don't even go out and begin to fulfill the great commission I gave you until you're baptized in the Holy Spirit. That's the starting point. And he says, you'll, but you will be baptized in the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Um, now if you notice, uh, in, I had to kind of delete it because I don't have enough space, but he said, when he says, uh, to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard of from me, he then uses the word for. So whenever you use the word for, it's to redefine what he just said. So he says, for John baptized with, uh, with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Receiving the promise of the new covenant includes receiving the promise of being baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not saying you're not a Christian if you're not baptized in the Holy Spirit, but I'm saying that you, are, you have received very little of the New Testament a promise of the new covenant God wants to make with his people until you're baptized in the Holy Spirit. It's a beginning step. It's something that you should do when you receive Christ. And that new, receiving the baptism in the Spirit gives you a prayer language called speaking in tongues. It gives you the ability to prophesy with the anointing and power of the Holy Spirit and to be used of God in other spiritual gifts, it'll give you a greater increase in sensitivity to his word, a greater desire to worship. It, uh, it will cause the new covenant to no longer be theoretical, but be in your experience. Most Christians in America today, probably 95%, are living a theoretical Christianity where in their head, in some abstract kind of way, they assent to the doctrines of Christianity, but they've never experienced the risen Lord because you experience him as the baptizer in the Holy Spirit. Seven times the phrase baptized in the Holy Spirit is, is used. And set, and all, in every case, it says that Jesus himself will be the baptizer in the Holy Spirit. And it it's the baptism in the Spirit, as we're going to see next week, is the sign and symbol that the promise has come that Jesus has ascended and that he is the king. And you will desire to know the king, and you'll see him as king, and you'll want to worship him as king, and you'll experience the power of his kingdom when you step in to the realm of being baptized in the Holy Spirit. Until then, you're bringing a squirt gun to a fire instead of a fire hose. It's, it really makes that much difference. 
If I, I was not baptized in the Holy Spirit, fortunately I was baptized in the Holy Spirit in the middle of June 1974 when I was first starting to read the Bible and, and uh, getting convicted by the Holy Spirit to quit being a drug addict and some things like that. I hadn't even quit drugs yet or anything. But I had made a decision that I was going to be a Christian and I was going to follow God and I could never have been set free without the power of the Holy Spirit. And if I was not baptized in the Holy Spirit, it would be the, my focus every morning, every noon, every night until I, it happened. Because I haven't started to walk with Christ until I'm baptized in the Holy Spirit. Just so long as I'm clear. The promise to be baptized in the Holy Spirit is in fact uh, one and the same thing. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses. The Holy Spirit will be a witness, and the Holy Spirit will make you a witness. And when he had said these things, they, uh, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight to confirm what he was just saying. And while they were gazing into heaven, he went, uh, as they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Not the new modern ways where the church is going to be raptured out of here and, and all this kind of stuff. He will come exactly the same way he left. And he will descend and in, in, uh, stand on the Mount of Olives. And it will be the final judgment and the end of the world and not a preliminary step to other things. Uh, 1 Timothy 3.16, this is actually a creedal statement and it's a hymn that they sang in the early church. So in 1 Timothy, uh, when, Paul is, when Paul is telling Timothy, he, he's saying, Timothy, this thing you said hundreds of times and you sang hundreds of times, this is a great confession. What we do when we say the Apostles' Creed in the 19th Kings is we, as one people under God, confess the doctrines of Christ, right? Uh, it's the reason uh, statist countries that want you to become a worshiper of the state start the day with the Pledge of Allegiance. Because when you recite the creeds, you're pledging allegiance to the king, as part of his people. Um, and all allegiances need to take their place underneath that king. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh, that's the incarnation, was vindicated by the spirit, which speaks is the resurrection, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, which is what they were doing in the New Testament church, believed on the world, and taken up in glory. Now, this doctrine of glory, let's get into that just a little bit. Uh, as you notice, the Protestant creeds say, talk about the same body in which he was resurrected. So in Christ's resurrection, he, the same body that he lived in was resurrected. But as 1 Corinthians 15 brings out, it was changed to be not a Gnostic spiritual body where it was spiritual only, and that's what the... the uh, the, the uh, Protestants are trying to fight the idea of Gnosticism that Jesus had a, was raised only as a spirit. 
but he was raised in his own human body, but that body was changed into a body not subject to, to sin and death and decay and corruption anymore. Like it or not, as much as Terry likes to work out and eat donuts in a five-mile cage, no, uh, and eat totally healthy foods always, uh, that's why he doesn't go to the Roses with me on Monday nights anymore. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, you know, he's aging. I hate to tell you. Even Edwin, as young as he is, is already aging. You know? Uh, but but the, the body that we will sow into the ground when we have a resurrected body, the same as Christ, we'll be able to recognize one another. Kent will still be the young, handsome man that he is. But he will be able to just appear in the room. And he will not be subject to corruption to sin, to the law of sin and death. He won't be aging anymore. Won't that be great? My back probably won't hurt anymore. And Sam will like my messages. No, <laughs> no way, that's too miraculous. All right, just kidding. Um, he's, he was taken up in glory, and he will come again in glory. Okay, so if you study glory all through the Bible... Glory first appears in Eden, and glory appears in the tabernacle in Exodus 40 and so forth. When they built the tabernacle exactly as the Lord had commanded and followed the pattern as Exodus 25, 8, 9, and 40 say, told Moses to do, and as, as the rest of the Exodus tells us over and over that he made this exactly as the Lord commanded, this exactly the pattern, this exactly the way. When they got done, the priest dedicated the temple to the Lord, and the Lord, because it was his pattern, he filled it with glory in such a way that the priest could not stand to minister. When was the last time we were worshiping and the glory of God fell so heavily that we had to get on our faces and the people were repenting and, and people who didn't know God were coming to God and so forth? I submit to you, the more we get restore the pattern and the more people who get on that trip together, the more that will happen because Jesus Christ presently reigns in glory. And where two or three are gathered in his name by the Holy Spirit, he's in their midst. Now, Ephesians uh, 1, 18 through 30 says, uh, These are in accordance with the working of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Now, what's some of the, part of the... Part of the implications of that idea is that he is coronated as king of the earth all authority in heaven is in earth so paul says when he was seated at the father's right hand in heavenly places by the way both uh, two of paul's epistles including ephesians and colossians tell us that we are seated with him in heavenly places uh, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named people whenever someone says to me uh I say, how you doing? He sa they say, fine, under the circumstances. I always say, what are you doing under the circumstances? Uh, because you're supposed to be seated in heavenly places at the Father's right hand, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet. And he gave him his head over all things to the church. Now, he's not just head of the church. He's head over all things and given to the church to exercise that dominion, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. 
Hebrews 14 talks about how we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens and he can sympathize with our weaknesses because he was tempted in all things. And in 1 John 2 tells us that he ever lives, and so does Hebrews 7.25, that he ever lives to make an intercession and so forth. So people say to me, well, wait, tell me this idea of the coronation because the Bible says very little about it. But that's why you have to read the whole Bible. The Bible actually says a great deal about it. In all ancient kingdoms, including all biblical kingdoms, whether they are the people of God in Israel and Judah, or whether they are the Babylonians or the Medes or the Persians, all kings are always coronated with a ceremony. Those few nations that still have some sort of kingdom like England, they, the king doesn't just come to power and they don't have a ceremony. And in the Bible's ceremony, when Samuel anointed Saul king and David... He pours oil, symbolic of the Holy Spirit, on the king's head that flows down his beard, as Psalm 133 tells us. And that's why they do it to the priest and to the kings and to the prophets. And it flows down their beard, down their robes, into the ground below them. And the symbolism is that you will be given the power to rule over that ground. Okay? So Jesus promised that you would be baptized in the Holy Spirit not many days from now because here's exactly what happened. When he ascended, before he could sit at the Father's right hand, he had to be coronated as king. And God began to pour the oil of the Holy Spirit. That's why John says the Holy Spirit wasn't given because Jesus wasn't yet glorified. The Holy Spirit is the symbol of, and the proof that Jesus has ascended and that he's glorified and that he's currently reigning through the church in all the earth. And the anointing oil pours and it pours into the ground symbolic of that area, that geographical area where Jesus, or where, where the king would reign. So Jesus begins to pour the Holy Spirit. Uh, God the Father pours the Holy Spirit on Jesus. It pours down into the earth and it became Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And Pentecost clearly says, Joel 2.28, Peter quotes it in Acts 2.17 and 18, that this is the fulfillment of the promise that I will pour out my spirit on all peoples. So that anointing oil is still pouring, and it's still pouring, and it's still taking more dominion, and it's still expanding the kingdom, and it's going to expand the kingdom until when we read about Singapore, we don't just read about how in the last 25 years it has gone from 8% Christian to like 17% Christian because we'll start reading how it's gone to 25% Christian and 33% Christian and 50% Christian. And the gospel is exploding worldwide even though in the Western culture it's diminishing. But you haven't seen the end chapter yet. Believe me, the, the anointing oil of King Jesus that's, that's being poured in, out in Pentecost will continue to pour until he reigns from sea to sea, from coastland to coastland, and where that until he has a people of every tribe, tongue, nation, and, and so forth, till all the earth has some measure of restoration of everything that was affected by the fall of man. Now, if you don't have that vision, I don't know how you get up in the morning. If you're, you know, if you struggle with spiritual disciplines or, or 
obeying God and this fleshly habit or so forth or whatever, go back to, is that your vision? Because the Bible says without a vision, the people are unrestrained. If you're struggling with being able to restrain yourself at the dinner table or wherever, go back and find out if you really have the right eschatology. Because you won't have any trouble restraining yourself when you have the right vision. All right, so I'm out of time. And uh, maybe I'll just wait till next week. Point D there is some implications of the ascension, the glorification and the chlorination of of Jesus Christ and why it's important. And maybe I'll start there next week and get more into Pentecost next week. And uh, because I, I want us to see that he presently reigns and that his kingdom is expanding. What happened in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, what happened in the ascension, what happened in his glorification, what happened in his coronation, what happened at Pentecost is very similar in, uh, you know, Sydney could give you for some battles in the Civil War, maybe Gettysburg or something, but I, I know World War II. It was very similar to D-Day. After D-Day, it was a foregone conclusion. The Germans had lost, the Allies had won, and it was a mop-up operation from that point on. And in fact, uh, Franklin Roosevelt, because he was thought Joseph Stalin, the communist, was such a great, wonderful atheist and such a wonderful guy. He was deceived by Stalin into holding up the American and British troops to meet in Berlin when Churchill and others said, don't let the communists take over all of Eastern Europe, beat them there, and cut them off. But Franklin, but our wonderful president called Franklin Roosevelt, who, why the heck anybody thinks he was a good president, I don't know. Maybe they're on drugs or something. But, uh, you know, he, he uh, was so impressed with Stalin that he said, yes, we, we should follow your plan and give all of Eastern Europe to the communists. Well, that's another issue. But the point is, the battle is over. The war is won. It is finished. And we're going to look at more implications of that with the ascension and the glorification and the, and the coronation of Christ as we look at Pentecost next Sunday. Amen.